My mother was a first-generation Irish-Scottish woman from Brooklyn. My father was an immigrant from India. And I remember when I took the bigger role in Singapore when I first moved, he said, I can't believe I worked this hard to get to America for you to just go all the way back to Asia. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This week, Sheila Patel, as of exactly today, as this episode is released, she's celebrating one year as vice chairman of B Capital. It's been exactly a year since I left uh, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. I retired after um, 18 years as the chairman of, uh, of asset management and a member of the firm-wide management committee. Now, to be fair, Goldman has been in a number of areas in private investing for many, many years and uh, runs one of one of the biggest uh, buried within the uh the, the huge behemoth that is Goldman Sachs runs one of the biggest private investing platforms in the world. So pretty familiar with this, with the space, right. although one, you know, one year at a dedicated venture capital firm and I'm loving it. Good, good. Well, and let me also <laughs> add investment woman of the year by investment week, financial news, top 100 women in finance and fortune magazines, most powerful women in Asia. So, so yes, uh, your, your bona fides are, are rock solid. <laughs> yeah, well, I've gotten around, that's for sure. <laughs> you said you're having in a lot fun. of different What's... parts of the world. So You said you're having fun. What's the most fun part? Look, I think what's really incredible about moving from uh, a $2 trillion asset manager that's in every aspect of investing uh, for many different types of investors is to get back to the, um, you know, kind of the home base of what investing is about. Knowing companies, knowing the macro environment, understanding how certain sectors work and where businesses are going. Let's talk about where things are going. Uh, what what should we expect ahead? I mean, a lot of uh, different firms, Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia, Lightspeed, have all been warning their portfolio companies. What are you telling your portfolio companies? I think the warnings make sense in the macro environment at this point, almost speaks for itself. When we talk to our portfolio companies, though, I think the biggest thing that we do is, is try to be constructive. Of course, we're going to spend time on their cash runways. Of course, we're going to spend time on uh, questions around uh, how they're thinking about growing their business and uh, dealing with a more difficult environment, what their customers are asking for, how their pricing is looking, etc. But we're spending a lot of time thinking about how we can help them. I think the unique footprint that B Capital has with our uh, special strategic partnership with BCG allows us to not just ask the questions and give the warnings, 
because uh, nobody needs a warning when they've ended up on a double black diamond and, and they expect it to be on a blue slope, right? <laughs> um, I, we get the warning. But what, what do we do? And what are the years of experience that uh, we can offer with having many of our investors been founders themselves with the BCG Connection? What can we offer to say, what's different? What can you do well? What new customer could you acquire that's trying to save money and or trying to innovate in a way that helps their business through a difficult time? And that's what makes the sectors we spend time in so interesting. If you think about enterprise, healthcare, even fintech, there's so much that needs to be made more efficient in the world. And sometimes those efficiencies come out the best in difficult times. So these these warnings that we are hearing, and I'm by the way, I'm just going to say BCG for those who are not in the financial world, Boston Consulting Group, right? Uh, right. For these warnings that we are hearing from various, what, what confuses me about it is it wasn't that long ago we were talking about venture swimming in money. That money has not ceased to exist. If there is a better time to invest, I can't think of it being better than now in the sense that other investments are not going to pay off, say, the, the Wall Street, the, that sort of thing. That, and we've seen a history of so many great startups, the Ubers or even the Googles, uh, starting up in very lean times. Uh, that in some ways, I'm a bit surprised that, that venture-led startups are being warned about their cash burn and their runway. Yeah, well, I think, you know, first of all, it's a natural human reaction. So, well, well, we may think that uh, different areas have their own unique ability to look through critical times or look through difficult um, uh, forward headwinds. It's made up of humans just like everybody else. And the first reaction to a market shock or a series of market shocks and difficult and hard to predict um, economic and geopolitical environment is to say, whoa, let's take a second here. This is scary. What, what do I do next? And that's entirely human, entirely reasonable, and important thing to anticipate in and of itself when you think about a business, but particularly growing businesses like we deal with in the venture space. So it's natural. It's what's to be expected. But at the end, it kind of makes everybody, as we should, go back to our knitting and say, well, what is this all about? Finding great companies, finding resilient business models and great ideas that are good through good and bad times. And I think you're right. Those bad times drive great ideas. Well, and, and you know, if you're building an enterprise company, the next Salesforce or something, it doesn't matter where the Dow is. It doesn't matter really if there's a recession. You may not have uh, some of the small companies that are going to be your clients right away, but you still have to build this great next enterprise software company. Uh, absolutely. And, and when you think about enterprise to keep going with that space, um, you know, when you enter tougher times, those are the moments that big corporates are trying to solve problems, make things more efficient, make their businesses work better, cut costs. And a great enterprise business very often streamlines something that was done very inefficiently in trans um, very traditional businesses, right? And so take, for example, one of our portfolio companies, Isertis. Isertis is a company that does what probably, you know, to some people seems like the most boring thing imaginable. They help you organize your contracts, right? And so, I don't know, that doesn't sound like the most exciting thing on the one hand. On the other hand, you know what? And you're actually working in a large scale business, and I'm familiar with this myself, that is really exciting. Because usually 
There are many, many contracts across many, many departments and divisions, sometimes with the same people, the same vendors, the same entities. No information is shared. Uh, an issue happens. There's no way to check what is in the terms of each of those contracts when an act of God happens, when something like COVID hits. What does my vendor owe me? What do I some, owe somebody else? What's going on? Who, who's going to have a continuation of service? What am I owed if they don't? And so a company like Isertis helps you not have to have a thousand people pouring through tens of thousands of documents to figure that out, but instead take all your contracts in a very you know, consistent linear way and say, I need to look for this instance and this type of language. I need to be organized. I need to be able to compare when I'm dealing with the same vendor across different divisions and make sure two different divisions didn't pay completely different prices for the same thing. And so there's so many different ways that that type of innovation can help that I think you see great enterprise ideas benefit from tougher times when people say, whoa, what can I do here that's a bit better that I didn't worry about before because times were good. You had mentioned uh, working at a large company, Goldman Sachs. You were there 18 years. Uh, London, Singapore, and New York. I'm curious mm -hmm. as to which one you liked best. Not not the office necessarily, but having lived in those three th places, which one you liked best? Gosh, that's hard because I grew up in New York. So it's it's hard not to say, you know, it's, it's New York. But I think from a cosmopolitan perspective, um, uh, both London and Singapore have such a huge amount to offer. I learned so much in Singapore and just, you know, as, as a point of interest, right? I, I grew up in New York. I'm a child of immigrants. My mother was a first generation Irish Scottish woman from Brooklyn. My father was an immigrant from India. And, uh, you know, he's full on, uh, American story, never taught me Hindi, no interest in going back. And I remember when I took the bigger role in Singapore when I first moved. He said, I can't believe I worked this hard to get to America for you to just go all the way back to Asia. And, you know, it was a laugh. And then he realized I should have taught you Hindi or at least the curse words. So if somebody <laughs> was making fun of you, you'd, you'd know what they were saying. Um, but I think the energy and the drive you see in Asia and having lived there twice over the last, you know, 15 years, even the two different times I lived with London in between, the growth and the energy and the and the enthusiasm for new ideas is unmatched. Then you get to London and the sophistication and the culture and the, just the amazing nature of that city is is unmatched in its own way. So I, I don't know. I haven't chosen for you, <laughs> but I've learned something from each, and I try to bring a bit of each to the next. When you were when you were in Asia, you were promoted to vice chairman. Um, you you were in charge of, and there's so much opportunity as you mentioned in Asia, particularly in China, particularly in enterprise. How has your experience with China been in the sense that, let's say I'm a, a potential LP, I'm a state retirement fund. What are you telling me as you work with China about what you will and will not do in, in China? Well, I, I think we, like many others, are cautious about China right now. We're very focused on the next party Congress, which I think will tell us a lot about the government's attitude towards areas of growth. I think, again, when we look at the sectors of interest to us, things like enterprise, but also healthcare, fintech, um, we very much spend our time and have a great team on the ground led by Daisy Kai, our partner there, um, focused on what are the areas that actually align with the bigger goals in China? 
right? Enterprise certainly fits in that bucket. It's not about gathering very personal data um, or exporting it in any way. It's about making businesses function better. Um, similarly, when you think about healthcare, you know, China has a great need for innovation in that space. When you think about the size of the population, the age of the population, and the rural nature um, versus the cities, and so trying to bring some cohesive ability uh, to um, to care for a population like that, and so on. And so, I think we focus on the areas that we think will be supported, encouraged for growth, valued. Um, and we also think a bit earlier because I think it's important to, to realize where the value stages are within China and that it's extremely competitive. I mean, we see Sequoia just raised its biggest fund ever there. So I don't see investors stepping away, but I see them wanting um, more thoughtful, more uh, long-term oriented strategies towards the sectors that will actually matter in the long-term economy of China and globally. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Financial Times described you this way. Patel made a name for herself by taking long-term bets on emerging markets that others deemed too risky. Is that accurate? Did you do things that, that others would have said are too risky? And what is your sense of risk? Oh, it's an it's an interesting quote. I don't know. I, I can't even remember when they wrote that. It was probably when probably when I moved to Singapore and then they probably thought Singapore was risky at, at that, that moment. So who knows? But look, I, I think um, one of the things that is has always been important to me and one of the reasons I've moved around the world, but one of the reasons also that B Capital was a great uh, fit for me as I thought about what I wanted to do next and, and, and uh, get back to the heart of investing was being able to look for a great idea anywhere. Right. And so I guess I look at risk in a different lens. Um, we can say the best ideas only come from one zip code and focus in on that. Um, and maybe when it was harder to export great ideas or to uh, leverage them in a more global context, that was true. Um, but when you look at the way B Capital was built, it was global by design. 
uh, with offices in Asia, offices in the U.S., um, partners and, and uh, uh, groups coming together and comparing the best companies from every ge- geography. And then actually through our own platform uh, team and connections and, and B Capital's deep roots, and then also BCG's huge global footprint, helping the best ideas go global. And I, I think that's where the world is headed. So to my mind, the risk was always staying parochial wherever you were, thinking that London or the Hudson River or um, uh, a few zip codes in California were where all the best things would happen. They might have been where the capital was. And that's even true of Singapore itself. That might have been where the capital was, but that doesn't mean that's where the ideas are. And we need to look for those. What risk did you take that turned out, okay, yeah, no, I shouldn't have done that? Um, let's see, what shouldn't I have done? Well, there, there are actually, a, you know, maybe a number of people who the first time I moved to Singapore said, wow, that was, that was pretty dumb because I moved, um, right before the GFC. And so I got to And again, Singapore. I'm going to jump I in uh, for those non-financial, yeah. the global financial yeah. crisis. <laughs> you know, you're in finance yeah. when you describe the global financial crisis as GFC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's probably yeah. too many FT articles myself, right? But it's a global financial crisis hits, and I've been in Singapore six months, co-heading our efforts in Asia. Um, you know, I was asked asked to move there by Lloyd, the CEO, and and Gary Cohn, the president at the time, to help expand our business there. And I pretty quickly went from hiring mode to um, crisis management mode to stay up all night watching what happens in the U.S. as it drives the world and then work all day to try to mitigate risk in Asia. And, you know, that that probably seemed like a bad idea, right? Um, but actually, it led me to a great thing, which was moving into asset management, because at that point, I was still on the trading, um, you know, the securities business side, the sales and trading side. And um, I think you always have to be able to look at a situation, whether it's for your personal career from a, an investing or a business perspective and say, okay, is it time to ask the tough question? Do I still need to be doing this? Is this still a viable business? Um, do I need to cut my losses? And and if so, let's all be grownups and figure out where we are. And so I raised my hand pretty quickly and said, you know, you've staffed up Asia big time. I get why we did it, but does it make sense now? And And if it doesn't, What's out there to do that does make sense? And I was extremely fortunate. That's how I ended up moving over to asset management. That's how I ended up moving to London the first time um, to uh, to expand in that region because the board of Goldman had made that commitment at that moment to uh, to really um, look from a global perspective at growing that business. And it was one of the best things that happened to me. So. Uh, so it was maybe a pretty crappy decision, but it ended up working out okay <laughs> because I figured out a way to turn it for the better. And that's what you always have to do. You mentioned uh, moving from trading. You you at one point actually worked on the trading floor. Uh, and that's something that, that you and I share. I uh, was at the Chicago Board of Trade. Now, I wasn't working for Goldman Sachs and I wasn't a big wig. I was the kid who took the order from the phone bank down into the pits, you know, uh, sell November oats at market or whatever. Um, a, a job, by the way, the, the, the trading floor is gone. That, that job must have been gone quite quickly as it was replaced by computers. But the energy of a trading floor, which will never be replicated because now it's all just down. 
is something that that just almost can't be described. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, before Goldman, I worked at Morgan Stanley. I, I was recruited to Goldman from Morgan Stanley, and I was working on uh, the derivatives desk. Um, you know, during the dot com bubble, actually, even before that, during LTCM, dur- during a lot of during a lot of bad <laughs> crises and so on. And there, there's nothing like that visceral feeling of watching the market change. Um, and I, I think today people maybe get it from their computers, people watch it on a screen, but as you would have absolutely seen, you, you felt it. There's just this little tinge of mood that changed, um, whether it was the way the phones changed. The ra- it sounded like the phones rang differently. It sounded like the world was changing. And, and you know, I have to say, I've, I've seen it all, uh, not, you know, not necessarily um, at Goldman, but even, you know, in the years well before I joined Goldman, I, you know, I've seen phones fly. I've <laughs> seen, uh, you know, traders stomp off. I saw somebody try to pick up their computer. Unfortunately, he wasn't quite strong enough. I guess he spent more time trading than at the gym. But, you know, it was, it was a really formative experience in terms of management through crisis, mm-hmm. because um, you still had to get trades done. You still had to help people. You see a market go limit down. You still had to figure out what, what you were going to do about it. And we constantly talk today about the speed of information flow, um, how markets move faster, how everything is, is quicker. But I don't know that we actually feel it that same way because it pr- felt pretty damn fast in those years, I would say, too, when, when, it's, going, uh, when it's going south or going up, actually. It, it's, it's tough to catch the tiger by the tail. Sheila Patel, Vice Chairman at B Capital. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.